episode 12 of the Hey Kerwin Show. Episode 12. 12 is actually, funnily enough, it's actually a very special number. 12 is the multiplication of 2 times 6. Ha! Take that, maths teachers. In fact, maths is the only subject I ever passed. Once. I failed every subject from year 1 all the way through to year 12. And in year 11, I had a really cool maths teacher. Uh, because I used to do the elective maths, it was called veggie maths or vegetable maths. I think it was called social maths. Basically, you know, maths for the people who are, you know, they're special, they're unique. They're the, they're the, the visionaries and the creatives of, of the world. Um, and I'm pretty sure he felt sorry for me. Uh, but he was a cool dude and he gave me a B once. And I don't know why, I don't know how it's possible. But uh, yeah, it was the only time, only ever on one report card that I, that I passed uh, a class. So yeah, I'm like a mathematician basically. We should do like a, math, math, what's it called, that, uh, those mathematics competitions? Mm -hmm. Like mathematic martial arts. Hey, two plus two! <laughs> For special people. For special people, yeah. First question, from Dean Giovanni Costa. Wow, dude, Dean Giovanni Costa. If that doesn't get you chicks, I'm not sure what will, pal. Hey Kerwin, what's a good way to keep level-headed and not act on emotions? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, and that's a really important question because we need to understand the link between emotions and stress and stress and emotions. You know, oftentimes when we're experiencing high levels of stress, uh, we become emotional. Uh, and it's a lot easier to become emotional when we're stressed because when you're, emo when you're stressed, you, know, you typically release this, uh, this hormone called uh, cortisol. cortisol has a range of biochemical and biological effects in the body. One of them is that it actually halves your IQ based on its ability to inhibit protein synthesis. And so when it does that, it makes you stupid. And you are more prone to making stupid decisions that will produce an emotional response. And when we experience an emotion in a stressed state, or just experiencing emotion full stop, emotions are a spectrum. You know, in the middle you've got neutral, which is you know, uh, neutral of emotion. You've got you know, high positive uh, emotion and you've got low negative emotion. But when you're experiencing any form of emotion, Two things we need to understand, first and foremost, emotions, okay, the, 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 uh, the, the peptide, the neural peptide for emotions, they are literally as addictive as alcohol, barbiturates and narcotics. So emotions are addictive, first and foremost. And the more we experience a particular emotion, the more we use that emotion as a crutch and the more we will go there in order to feel a certain way that is predictable. So emotions are addictive, first and foremost. Secondly, emotions intoxicate. They actually get you intoxicated. And when we're intoxicated, that actually augments your perspective, your point of view. You know, because sometimes people drink, you know, I'm feeling depressed, they drink, and all of a sudden, the world looks shiny. And it's not because alcohol has allowed them this extrasensory perception to see things that they couldn't see before. In fact, it's the complete opposite. The alcohol actually numbs the senses and prevents us from seeing certain things and generates, you know, certain biochemical and biological responses that produce this feeling of difference. Okay, it's an altered state. So when we experience emotion, it's the same thing. But the thing you need to understand, who thinks it would be a great idea to get shit-faced every time you did a meeting at work? Unless you're in advertising, I'm going to say no. It's not a wise idea. <clears throat> Emotions are incredibly destructive when they're left unchecked. There's nothing wrong with going and having a beer. Okay, but if you can't stop at one, if you have to drink 15 to the point or 20 to the point where you're on your knees and you're drooling and you need to get you know, poured into a cab, there's a problem. There's nothing wrong with experiencing emotions, but if you can't control those emotions and if you're not aware of when you are emotional, then we've got a problem. Then there could be an addiction in play. So the way that we learn how to manage our emotions is through this incredible process called regulation. Now, for, for, for some of us, or for, for, for few people, they were taught how to regulate in a very healthy way by their parents based on the way that they were reared. And 
Unfortunately for the majority of the population, not everyone was shown how to regulate emotions in necessarily the way that is required in order to maintain a healthy balance perspective all the way through life. And not that that's a bad thing, that's an incredible opportunity. So we need to learn how to regulate. We need to know what the process of regulation is. There's three steps to regulating emotion or stress. Step one, first of all, you need to know when you're emotional. Okay, there needs to be a level of self-awareness because you know, there's nothing worse than when you confront you know, a drunk, uh, which is typically in the case of an alcoholic, you go, mate, you're drunk. And they go, I'm not fucking drunk at all. But they're shit-faced, but they're saying that they're not drunk. You know, Dude, you're a little bit angry. I'm not angry at all. Oh my God, Matthias and I were actually walking down a street in Vancouver we're on a quantum walk where we basically just walk wherever we feel directed to. And as I was, we were walking past this nightclub uh, and there were two big security guards on, on the door talking to one another. And as we're walking up, I overheard the conversation where one guy said to the other guy, you're just too emotional, man. And the other guy's response was, I'm not emotional, man. Like it literally was, I'm not emotional. Like, was, <laughs> I literally cracked up laughing because oftentimes when we are emotional, we're not aware of it. We're just where we are. And if you're addicted to an emotion, which means that you spend a lot of time in that emotion, it becomes your baseline. It becomes normal. It becomes what your normality feels like. And so you don't even know when you're drunk. You don't even know when you're intoxicated. You don't even know when you're emotional because that's what normal life feels like. So we need to be aware of when we're in an emotional state. We need to be aware of when we're stressed. But in order to do that, we need to take a step back into 0.5, which is 0.5 instruction, which is we need to have a good baseline. We need to know what normal feels like. We need to know what, it, what does it feel like to feel absent of emotion. And absent of emotion isn't actually a bad thing. It's a beautiful place to be because you have this incredible perspective where you're not being jaded and you're not filtering information based on how you're feeling. Because when you feel an emotion, you filter information differently in order to maintain that specific feeling. And when you are neutral of emotion, you actually have no, almost no filters in play apart from the psychological ones at a belief level and maybe a couple of others, I'm sure. But you have no emotional filters in play and that enables you to see a lot more information. So the desire to be neutral is actually very attractive, especially in business, because when you're neutral of emotion, you see more information. When you're experiencing you know, a high level of excitement, you have to ignore all the bad things that are going on or all the potential pitfalls going on in order to keep that perspective, which means you have to ignore 50% of your reality. And if you're really depressed or angry, you have to ignore all the positive stimulus and all the positive things going on in order to maintain that perspective, which means you're you know, essentially filtering out the other 50% of reality. And what I know in business, what I know in life is the person who has the greatest advantage is the one who sees more. And that's what consciousness is all about. Consciousness to me, anyway, is about the ability to maintain a state where you're able to see more. You're able to receive more information, perceive more information in your environment because you, uh, you've consciously worked on the removal of emotional filters and in some cases, psychological filters as well. But if we can remove those emotional filters, we see more information. We see we have more clarity and as a result, we have more options. So point five. We need to know what we need to find a good baseline. So meditation's you know a great way. Yoga's a great way. You know exercise. Just find out what does it feel like to be absent of stress and emotion. And then step one: become aware of when you are emotional. Become aware of when you are stressed. Step two: regulate with breath. So regulating with breath is. And then you breathe out for six. Now I've kind of shortened that for, for effect, but breath has this incredible ability to, uh, to help reset the biology by using breath, but I'm talking deep belly breaths. So breathe in for six, hold for six, breathe out for six. 
and breathing has an incredible way to reset our biology, or especially our neurobiology, our neurochemistry, and just regulate the emotions and just regulate the feelings and just circulate our blood in a way that gets things moving. And breath is an incredible way to get back to your center. And step three is you need to manage the meaning of what's going on. Because in most cases, if we're, if we're experiencing a stress, if we're experiencing an emotion, it's because we are perceiving or we are judging a situation as either being good or bad. Okay, because there's only really two perspectives. There's good or bad, and then there's the spectrum on both of those. Of you know, it's good or it's great, or it's amazing, or it's oh, it's kind of okay, and then you've got bad, worse, oh, absolutely terrible, catastrophic. And the more you're able to manage what things mean, the more you're able to actually manage the release from the hypothalamus of those peptides that we call emotions, right? So when something happens, whether it be good, bad, or otherwise, a way to help manage the emotions, or let's say you're in play, you've experienced an emotional stress, you become aware, you then start using the breath to regulate. In this situation, if something's already happened, we wanna look at what, what has happened, we wanna look at the meaning that we've allocated and go, okay, what else could it mean? Because we know what's the benefit of it. If, if we're looking at something bad has happened, when we're feeling angry or depressed or sad, we can start asking the question, what's the benefit of this? How will this support me? What is this gonna give me that I didn't have before? And how's this gonna help me move forward faster because of the experience that it's given me? And when you keep asking those four questions, it gives you lots of evidence as to why this bad thing actually has a counterpart, which is good which is good and bad. And everything is good is bad. That's just the duality of nature. Nature is duality. Like there's good and bad in everything. It just depends on what you're looking at. And that will determine your experience. And if something good is happening, you can go, okay, what's the drawback of this? You know, what's the, what's the potential consequence of this? What's the potential downside? How, the, how could this potentially harm me in a way that I haven't thought about before? And you go from being all overwhelmed and excited to perhaps having a more neutral perspective. And I'm not trying to take you from high to low. And I'm not trying to take you from low to high. I'm trying to teach you how to play in the middle. Because when you play in the middle, that's, that's where the, the presence is. That's where the consciousness is. And that's where opportunity lives. Because you see more. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where the money lives. The money lives in the opportunity. Ideas are nothing more than information. And the more information that we have, the more ideas and opportunities and things we can do. Get neutral. That was a big one. Abia Nelson. Abia. Hey Kerwin, what is a good decision-making process framework you'd recommend to people that struggle with making decisions? Ooh, for me, I would say 90 plus percent of my decisions are made on gut, like what feels right. Um, but again, I, I guess the challenge with giving that advice is, you know, I don't know how tuned in you are to your intuition and I'm not sure if you sometimes misinterpret your emotions as intuition because sometimes if you're in an emotional state, it's hard to hear intuition, which is why what we just talked about is really important. Now, if you want to be playing an intuitive game, if you want to be playing the gut game, if you want to be playing the instinct game, we need to understand the impacts of emotions on instincts. We need to understand the impacts of emotions on gut uh, and intuition because it does affect it and prevent the information getting through in some cases. So first and foremost, I, whenever I make a decision, I like to be absent of feeling. I like to, and I know that sounds weird, absent of emotion on either end of the spectrum and I just go, right, what feels right? And I'll ponder this one, ponder this one, and I'll ponder this one and I'll go, right, what feels right? And then I'll just trust it and I'll go with what feels right. Uh, but there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that intuition is something that is developed not is, is something that's not just like a connection to a source greater than ourselves that provides us information, but there's also a component of intuition that is developed through experience that supports the connection 
we're sourcing, you know, where that information is coming from. So, you know, I've, I've met some incredibly, in, like Matthias is a great example, you know, he's like 15 and he's one of the most intuitive 15 year olds, I'm so sorry. Um, he's not 15, he's 34, he looks 15. Uh, you know, he's an incredibly intuitive young guy um, in some instances, in some situations, in some circumstances. Uh, so intuition can be born with, in, in what I believe, in, in, in many cases, without experience. But for me, when it comes to making certain other decisions, Sometimes there's a requirement to make decisions based on logic. You know, sometimes there's a requirement to make decisions based on cost. You know, sometimes there's a, a requirement to make decisions based on consequence. So for me, when I'm tapping into my intuition, I'm also looking at, okay, if, this were, if I was to do this, what's the, what is the potential upside? What's the potential downside? So I'm, again, balancing the, the potential of a decision based on, okay, what's good that can come from this and what's the potential downside as well? Because I think oftentimes when people make a decision, they just look at one or two things. They just look at, okay, what's the upside? I oh, don't worry about the bad things. We'll just focus on the good things. Don't be negative. No, fuck, be a little bit negative. Be equal. Be 50% negative and 50% positive. Okay, 100% optimistic. But when it comes to making a decision, weigh out the options in terms of, you know, what's, what's, what's the potential upside, but also what's the potential downside, because that's going to support you in making a better quality decision as well. But for me, 90%, 90% of the time it's intuition, 10% of the time it's, I'm looking at practical aspects, but 100% of the time I'm often combining both. Because sometimes I'll be looking at practical things and logistical things and finance things and go, yeah, this might make a better financial case, but it still doesn't feel right. And I always, 99% of the time, 98% of the time, okay. 97% of the time, I trust my intuition. And those 3% of the time that I don't, I always end up getting a kick in the balls and learning that I should have. Don't get kicked in the balls. Christy Stubbs, she says, if I take a job on the side of being a business owner, does that mean I'm compromising my own business? Well, tell her. She says, it's in the same industry, but I feel like I'm cheating on my business. <laughs> wow. Okay, the first question I'd ask, and I'm gonna assume the answer to this, is why would you do a side hustle? Now, there could be two reasons for this. It could be, well, I need additional income because my business isn't at the point yet that enables me to pay my bills, and that is a very good reason to have a side hustle going because if you can't pay your bills, you're not gonna have a business and everything's gonna to go to shit. Okay, the second reason might be is you're looking for experience and network. Okay, same industry, perfect. You're gonna be essentially, you know, depending on how well you know your industry and how well you know your business, you're going to be paid by someone else, not only for your time, but also to be taught on the industry. But my suggestion would be is if you are going to be taking a side hustle, as align it as much as possible to what it is that you're, going to, that you're doing, which it sounds like you have. My only layer that I'd add on top of that is just make sure that if you do have a side hustle in the same industry, make sure you're going after the player in the industry that is going to give you the most benefit and give you the most value. Now don't go and play with the the, the D-grade team in the industry, my advice is go and find the A-grade. Who's the A player in your industry? Who's the number one in your industry? And go and work with them. Because that in itself is gonna be you know, the education that you need in order to get there. However, some people get to a point where they're just, they're just playing it safe. You know, they're making money from their business, <clears throat> but they've just got their side hustle because they're either being a little bit greedy or they're trying to play it safe. Now there's nothing wrong in some cases being a little bit greedy, but what you don't understand, if, you know, if you've got a side hustle which is taking 20 hours a week out of your business, you've got to understand the implications of 20 hours a week, that 20 hours a week being invested into your business. Because the reality is those 20 hours a week will give you an hourly rate, but those 20 hours invested in your business, that return will be exponential. Now, it may not be necessarily immediate, but over time, as long as you're focusing on the right things, okay, the returns will be exponential. 
So whenever you can get to that point where you can give the side hustle away, I always recommend that you do because then you get a, your business gets 100% of your focus because you, you actually said the words, I feel like I'm cheating on my business. And right now, I wouldn't say you're cheating on your business, I'd be saying you have an open relationship in your business whereby you know, your business knows that you see other, other businesses. You know, you, your business knows you see other people and there's that understanding. But you know, if you get to the point where you're, you know, you're doing it, but you're doing it because you know, you're not doing it for the right reasons, then you're actually cheating. You're not cheating on your business, you're cheating your business. But worst of all, you're actually cheating on yourself. You're cheating you. Because those 20 hours invested in that business, okay, a week is gonna be, you know, over, we're talking over a fortnight, that's a whole working week, you know, over a month, you know, that's two whole working weeks, having a side hustle taken out of your business. Okay, so two weeks a month, we talk about that over 12 months, that's 24 weeks a year, okay, you, that's a long time. And you've got to think, what would your return be if you're investing that into your business for you, not for somebody else? Something to ponder. Ellie Korea. Ellie Korea. She says, oh no, I think I picked a wrong business partner. How do we grow together or when is it time to part ways? Oh, I remember saying this. Put it this way. If you're asking that question, the chances is you already know. Um, for me, um, you know, I know 90% of the time, 95% of the time, I know intuitively very quickly if I've picked the wrong partner to work with. Sometimes it might take time, and sometimes a relationship has a expiry date, has a lifespan. So you might choose a business partner, and it works really well for a period of time, and then it gets to the point where it no longer feels right or no longer is right. Um, I think ultimately, once you get to that point, again, for me, it's, it's very intuitive. I just know in my gut, I know in my waters uh, if, it's, if it's right and if it's wrong. And then the moment you know it's wrong, then you've got to just work out your exit strategy. You know, you've got to find a way where either you buy them out, they buy you out, uh, or, you know, in some cases, I've even seen this done where people, you know, even divide the business down the middle uh, and, you know, throw off their own entities in, in the same industry, uh, which is not even a bad way necessarily to go, you know, because people go, well, it's just competition. Well, there's fucking competition anyway. You know, but the ultimate thing, and, and I, this is my experience. I um, like I have partners in certain businesses, but when it comes to your main thing, unless this person is like, uh, like a, unless you guys just like work really, really well together, you know, there's this old saying, and I've got to be careful saying this. Uh, the only ships that are destined to sink every time is a partnership uh, in business, and you know, I don't necessarily agree with that in 100% of context, but I do have a lot of evidence in my own life to back that up as true, and I've seen tons of evidence. And I see it you know, almost on a, on, a, on a daily, weekly basis that that is also true. But at the same time, oftentimes we get into partnership because we have a deficit uh, or we have, uh, we have the requirement for someone to, to complement our skill sets. You know, we see this a lot in tech. You know, oftentimes a tech, uh, a tech company, a uh, startup company will have one founder, which is technology based, you know, a coder, and you'll have another founder, which is very sales and marketing. You know, in those situations, those, those partnerships work really, really well together. But if you are going to be in a partnership, and I'm going to assume it's maybe too late for this at this point, but maybe you've been smart enough to do this, you want to make sure you have what's called a shareholders agreement. Now the shareholders agreement makes sure that in the event of a situation like this, there's already a plan in place of what can take place. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen, doesn't necessarily make it any easier, but it certainly dictates the rules around you know, certain events. If this event happens, then these, event, these things are on the table. You can also uh, preset prices for buyouts, based on you know, whatever valuation formula that you use uh, to ensure that um, you, know, you don't necessarily get screwed um, or necessarily take advantage of someone else in, in the process of a, you know, of a, of a dissolution of, of a company. But I feel for where you're at, <clears throat> but my advice first and foremost, if you're at there right now, 
sit down, have an opus, open and honest conversation with your business partner about what's going on. Because whatever's going on might be just a symptom. It might not actually be a real issue. It just might be the symptom of a lack of communication or a misunderstanding. Uh, and one of the things that we know in relationships, whether it be a marriage, you know, uh, or a de facto relationship, or even a, God forbid, business partnership, you know, the number one reason that relationships fail is because communication breaks down. So, you know, communicate openly and honestly about where you're at with each other. Uh, there might be certain cards you want to hold close to your chest, and that's fine, but communicate openly and honestly in a way that is going to help flush out whatever the issue is, and because for all you know, it could be resolved. And if it gets resolved, you can keep moving forward. But then you might realize that the other person, you know, doesn't want to be there. And then you've gone, well, shit, I thought you did. Fantastic. We're both on the same page. And, or it could end up, you end up in a shit fight, but you don't know if you don't try. Is it good? Is it bad? Hard to say. Ben Webster, in a very crowded social media space, Benny, how can you stand out from the crowd and grow your following? Content, content and creative. Um, that's, that's the, you know, that's the variable. Like the, the difference between you being seen and not being seen is first of all, here's the first one, actually fucking publish something. That would be great, right? Because most people who ask this question, they're not fucking doing anything. Uh, I'm gonna assume you are, but if you're not, um, you know, first and foremost, start fucking publishing. Because uh, that will make you stand out. Because there's a lot of people who don't publish, and there are a lot of people who do that don't do it well, and there are a lot of people who do that you know do it well. And don't fucking worry about what everyone else is doing. Just worry about what you're doing. But here's the way that you stand out: add value, give value. Um, you know, be engage with your community, nurture your community. You know, I, I, I did a video for our K2 elites recently where I was saying, you know, social media isn't about making money; it's about making friends. You know, because when we talk about friends, we talk about connectionships, we're talking about nurturing, we're talking about relationships. And when you have that connection, when you have that relationship, you have a level of loyalty, but you also have a level of occupancy in their mind where they think about you on more on a regular basis. And when you have that, that increases the probability they're gonna buy because you become a trusted resource for them. And one of the things I can tell you right now, 95% is, okay, I'll be conservative, 93.4% of people who publish stuff on social media, but it's published shit. You know, publish something that is actually genuinely helpful. And I have had people say to me, okay, well, I can't publish the stuff that helps people because my competitors will steal it. Well, fucking who cares? Because if you're really good at what you do, it doesn't matter if they steal your shit because you're the person that, you know, it should be the best at what they do. I, I give away pretty much everything. I literally do. And I've trained almost every single competitor that I have in the marketplace, but that doesn't stop me. I don't care. I will continue to give everything away. Why? because I become the trusted resource. I become the resource that people come to, and as a result, even if I give everything away, people still wanna come and learn from me, okay, in order to learn how to do it better and be in an environment where they can interact with me and connect with me. You know, and oftentimes in a services business, you, know, you could tell everyone exactly how to fix their problems, but they're still gonna want someone to actually come in and fix it for them. And you need to, you know, it's this abundant mentality where you just realize that the more you give to the world, the more that the world gives back to you. And the more that you withhold from the world, the more the world is going to withhold from you. It's just a reflection of where you're at. Uh, and so for me, the easiest way to stand out in fucking social in a crowded market is number one, stand out, like publish, step up and publish. Number two, add value. And number three, engage with your audience. Listen to what they're saying. Listen to what their feedback is and use that to engineer the content as you're delivering it. Because honestly, like it's naturally not that I have personally found, and not everyone will necessarily agree with this, but I have personally found that it's actually not and I've got to be really careful saying this. I don't think it's necessarily, it's difficult, but I wouldn't say it's the hardest thing I've ever done to stand out. The hardest thing that I've done to stand out is actually find the right talent to put around me to help me do it. Um, 
but even when we started the social experiment, you know, it was just me and Maddie. It was just me and one person. You know, he was following me. He was filming me. We were working together and collaborating on the creative. Maddie was doing 80% of the creative, 90% of the creative. I was adding a little bit of instruction here and there. Uh, and then all I had to do was Maddie would give me a thumb drive. I'd stick it in. And I'd upload and I'd put some copy on. And I published. You know, and sh sure enough, within uh, you know a few months, it it exploded. And that came down to, I think, a number of things. First of all, I've been doing what I've been doing for 20 years. I'm not a fucking, you know, I've not been doing this. I didn't read a book and go, ooh, I want to be a fucking business dude. I want to be a business guru. Not that I am anything of the sort, but my point being is I've been doing this for 20 years. And so by the time I started taking my content to the market, you know, people loved to hear it because the information was practical. The information was good. The information, more importantly, it fucking works. And so, you know, people feel that. So the challenge for most people is not in the publishing of the content necessarily, although that is a big challenge, it's just making sure your content is good enough. Because that's the litmus test. If your content's not good, the market ain't gonna respond. Because I've had people go, but Kerwin, I did exactly what you said. I published, you know, two videos a week, I published five videos, I published four videos a day, and you know, I'm getting like ten views. And I look at the videos and say, but yeah, but your content's shit. Your creative is shit. You know, what do you expect? Shit content, shit content. You know, it doesn't matter if you put a fucking Mayfair filter on it, <laughs> it's still a shit photo. I saw some guy this morning on, um, on, on Facebook, you know, he was doing a presentation to camera and the information wasn't necessarily bad. It wasn't fantastic, but it wasn't bad. But he's sitting there in this t-shirt that doesn't fit him, says the guy who's wearing a t-shirt that looks like it's been painted on. He was standing in a dark room, he had audio was terrible, and he had a dirty flip chart that he was actually drawing on. And I just looked at the whole scenario and I was just like, that's just bad, man. Like, that's just bad. Like, get yourself a light, you know? Get yourself a lapel for your camera. You know, light up your room. Look at your, back, you know, look at your backdrop. Because here's the thing. You could have, uh, when it comes to content, especially video, people will tolerate a, a, a poorer image, but they won't tolerate bad audio. They just won't. Um, but what I know above anything else is people in some cases will tolerate bad, a little bit of bad audio. People in some cases will tolerate a little bit of a grainy picture, but they won't tolerate shit content. Simple as that. Create good content, do good creative around it, and uh, yeah, just publish. Just keep, just press publish, upload. The end. That was episode twelve of the hashtag Hey Kerwin show. Send in your questions. Hashtag Hey Kerwin. Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, smoke signals, airplanes, helicopters. You name it, we listen to it. Let me know what is your biggest question, life, business stuff. Anything you want to know? Anything I can help with? If I can't, I will be the first person to tell you. But the question of the day is, what's holding you back? from publishing on social media. Now I know not, maybe not everyone necessarily watching this is into social, which is from a business perspective, that's fine. But if you are, I'm curious to know, like what's actually holding you back from actually doing more on social media? I wanna know, is it a fear, is it a belief? Let me know below, in the comments below, what is your biggest challenge holding you back from doing more stuff on social media? That's episode 12 of The Hey Kerwin Show. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.